We're going to talk about repentance this morning as we are continuing in our series. Uh, we started last week. Uh, we've been going through words, important words in the Bible. Uh, words of life, faith. This is a series on faith. And specifically, this is about our response to God's salvation. We talked about salvation uh, over the last month, month and a half about how he has accomplished salvation, what he has done in salvation. And so this series of words is our response. What does God expect? How does he expect, I should say, our, us to respond to his work? And again, I want to make this clear. Salvation is his work, right? It's something he does, but he does expect us to respond to that work. And how does he expect us to respond? We looked last week, of course, at faith, the idea of believing, of of accepting the truth of the things that we read in the Bible and accepting those in a way that is uh, uh, leads to some sort of change. We're going to look at the first element of that change today. Faith is not just an intellectual assent. It is an understanding that alters our way of living, beginning with repentance, this first idea. And in the Old Testament, we talk about the words. We're going to talk briefly about the words here. In the Old Testament, there's a couple of words primarily used that are translated in different ways. Translation's a funny thing. The word repent does appear in the Old Testament, in English Old Testaments, uh, as a variety of different words that are in the Hebrew. Uh, Naham, which is used of people to have compassion or to repent or to console. It is used of Yahweh as relent or regret. There are several instances where this word is used uh, of Yahweh. Genesis chapter 6, we think about the flood. He looked on man, he, he regretted that he made man. There are times when he was going to send punishment on Israel. There was time he was going to wipe them all out. Moses, I'm going to start over with you. And Moses pleads with him, don't do that. And he relented. When it's used of people, this word Naham, it is sometimes translated repent or to have compassion on. And we see the compassion, how that ties in with God's relenting from disaster. The word sub, which is to turn back or to return or to recede. Sometimes it's used of water, as in, again, the flood, the waters receded. That's this word here. But sometimes used of people to idea of returning or repenting in, in different places. The word repent in our English, and we've said this about many words, the word repent in English has almost inherent in it a religious connotation. That is not the case of these words, right? These words are used in a variety of different contexts. And so we come to the New Testament. This word is the primary word in the New Testament, translated repent. It means really, though, to change your mind, which we go back to the Hebrew words. We see that in those words, right? When Yahweh has naham, I don't know if I'm using that correctly. I'm not a Hebrew expert. He is changing his mind. He doesn't feel like he did anything wrong, but he does change his mind to relent from the disaster he was going to send upon Israel when he regrets that he made man. And then when it comes to us, then we think about what it means to repent for us to change our mind. There is an inherent element of guilt when it comes to us. Literally, from metanoia or metanoeo, to think or perceive, that's noeo, differently or after, that's meta. To think differently or to think differently after. That's what it is, to change your mind. When we think about faith and how this leads to from faith to repentance then, I hear the message, I read the message, or somebody teaches me the message of the gospel, whatever they do, however that's accomplished, when I believe it, that is, I accept it as true, that should automatically lead to me changing my mind about some stuff. 
about how I used to live, about what I used to think, about what I used to do, about the things that I used to care about. There should be a natural leading from believing in the message to changing my mind about various things. Now, this is not a New Testament idea. I want to make that very clear. It is something that God has always desired in his people. Jeremiah 30, verse 21 and 22. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord God. Return. This is that word, right? Return. O faithless sons, I will hear, heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. This idea of returning, which is used in Hosea 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. A lot of returning being pleaded of in the Old Testament, right? The Israelites given uh, this great salvation out of Egypt. They're brought into the land of Canaan. Of course, they have some snafus along the way. Then over time, they, they drift from God. They depart from God. And the plea is always return. This is to repent, right? To change your mind. To stop doing the things that you were doing and start doing the good things again. This is almost re-repentance, right? Where they did it, well, I guess maybe they didn't do it originally, but we get into this cycle too, don't we? We get into the cycle of, I do good stuff for a while, then I fall away. But God always wants us to come back. He always wants us to return, to continually change our mind back to his ways. Psalm 7, 10 through 13, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Why? Because of what we do. He feels indignation because of us. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons. This is in the Psalms, right? We, we come, sometimes think about, of course, uh, the salvation as sort of a New Testament idea. But God has always wanted people to change their mind in regards to him. To stop thinking about things in their own lives, for their own priorities, for their own goodness, and to think about God's goodness and his priorities and his ways. That is what God has always desired. But of course, repentance is particularly emphasized in the New Testament. From the very beginning of the gospel message, we won't read it, but we've read it before. Repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From the very beginning of his ministry. And in Luke 15, we see this highlighted very well, I think. Luke 15, 6 through 7. When he comes home, he calls together. This is a, a series of parables of lost things, right? So the lost sheep, and then we'll look at the lost coin. This is the lost sheep. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns from being lost to desiring salvation, who changes his mind about what is right and wrong and what is righteous and unrighteous and what is worthwhile and not. There will be more joy in heaven over the sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance because they already think the right stuff. Luke 15, we keep going in nine, verse 9, the lost coin. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice for me, for I found the coin I had lost. Just so I tell you, there will be, uh, there is joy before the angel of, of God over one sinner who repents. The value of repentance. And what is the point of these parables? God wants repentance. And he is happy. There is joy. Changing our mind is a good thing. When we admit that we were wrong before, whatever it is, and we come and admit, yes, I was wrong, that is not a cause for sadness or shame 
that is a cause for joy. Do you feel joy when others repent? When others turn and change their minds? Now, after emphasizing the value of repentance, he explains it in more detail in a parable what it looks like. Of course, the parable of the prodigal son, the wasteful son, the lost son, we call it prodigal, but it really is in a series of lost things, right? Uh, the son who, he wants his inheritance early. Give me my inheritance, father. He goes and he leaves and he goes into another land and he wastes it all. And he ends up having to live off the slop from the pigs because he's lost all of his money. And we see repentance here in verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, here's the repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. What's the change of mind here? Father, give me my money. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be independent. I'm ready to be away from you. But he changed his mind when things did not go well, when he was making many mistakes. He did eventually come to the idea, things were not so bad in my father's house. Things were not so bad. Why did I leave? Things were not so bad when I was there. Rather than fighting against this and, and beating my head against the wall and living in my squalor, I will instead go ask for some semblance of forgiveness. Not, not to return to what he was. He doesn't think he's going to get that. But he's changed his mind about his own ability to be independent from his father. I will just go and be a servant and things will be better for me there. Of course, we know what happens in verse 31 in the parable, right? He said to him, son, this is, of course, the other son is very mad about this. And, and the father is talking with the son about, you, you know, the son says, why did you give him such a feast? Why have you welcomed him back? He wasted all your money. What, what are you doing? And the son, father says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was, this your brother was dead. Now, not literally dead, but dead to them. He probably didn't talk to them at all in the time that he was gone. They have no idea what's going on. They have no idea where he's gone. This, your brother, was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. Repentance is the realization that I cannot live without God. That is what repentance is. When I accept the truth, that is, I believe in the gospel, which there's a whole bunch of corollaries. I believe in God's existence. I believe in the Bible. I believe in the resurrection. All these things that go along with that. When I believe in the message, there should be an internal switch in my, in my heart and in my mind. I am insufficient. I need God. That is the, the repentance. The first step down the path, we're not going to read it, down the path that separates us from the demons. We've, we've mentioned it several times recently in James chapter 2, right? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They believe, but they have not repented. They have not changed either what they do or what they think or what they feel. They have not changed anything about themselves despite their belief in Yahweh. They know he exists. What separates us is not belief. It is the change. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I did regret it. 
For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. This idea of regret is, he feels kind of bad that he made them feel bad, but not enough to be doing anything different. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness, and I want you to note these, this list of things here. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Their godly sorrow, their acceptance of the truth, right? Why were they sad? Because they believed the things Paul said when he talks about how they were doing things wrong. They believed that Paul was correct. And that belief engendered this grief. Repentance does stem from a place of sadness or grief. The grief that naturally comes from believing my lostness. And believing what Jesus had to do to save me. And believing in the agony of the cross. And that it was because of me. There should be some sadness. If the story of the cross does not make you sad, you do not believe it. I can say that with absolute confidence. Because we know that this change of mind, what does he say, comes from this godly grief. It comes from sadness and grief. When you first believe the Bible story, you are confronted with your own lostness and the pain required to save you. And we feel more generally grief over our separation from God. Maybe we feel grief over the sorrow my sin has caused in the lives of others. The way that I've mistreated people, the things that I've done to others that have hurt them. That should make me sad. But I want to be clear. Feeling sorry, feeling sorrow, feeling grief is not repentance. It can lead to repentance. It should lead to repentance. But the feeling of sorrow that stems from belief is not itself the repentance. Repentance comes from the change, right? We can only claim to repent if our sorrow has caused us to change our mind and to think differently than we did before about what I did. So we can think about this in, in regards to my sin. If I've repented, I no longer think that what I did was okay. I no longer think that what I did was acceptable. And I'm going to try not to do that in the future. If I'm thinking about my relationship with God, Repentance is I accept and I believe that I am separated from God, that I need to submit to his will, not my own, that I need to put his will first. That's repentance about our sin, about our needs, about our guilt, about our God. And again, we go back to this list of, of emotions here. Actually, I'll go back on this screen. For see what earnestness. I want you to think about these words in your life. Do you have these emotions when you think about your faith. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What punishment. There is an element of punishment in that I understand my lostness, right? When you think about your faith. The knowledge that you have of the gospel. The things that you know about God. That clock is not correct. Do you feel these things? Do you feel earnest in your desire to please him? Do you have that fear 
that comes from believing and being lost. You have the indignation, not only at your own sin, but the sin of others. I'm indignant about how could I have done that? Why, why was I so stupid? Do you feel these things? Thus, what separates godly sorrow from worldly sorrow is not a feeling, but what comes next. What do you do with that change? Matthew, 7, or Matthew 3, 7 through 10. You brood of vipers who warned you, this is uh, John the Baptist, right? You, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That is, I don't need to change because, of course, I have Abraham as my father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Paul says it later in Acts 26. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds, or performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. The thing that separates the godly sorrow that leads to repentance and the, the worldly sorrow that leads to death is my change in mind leads me to do something different. I'm not just going to keep doing the same stuff over and over and over. Because here's the alternative, right? If nothing changes in your life, did you really change your mind? Again, this levels of belief or knowledge, the things we believe, we quote, we claim to believe, and the things we demonstrate by our lives. The alternative is either insanity or willful rebellion. Let me say it this way. If you think you've repented and you're still doing the same stuff over and over and over without any attempt to change, not that you're going to be perfect, right? But hopefully you're doing less sin, you're sinning less than you did before. You're making some effort to be different. If you're not, then you're either insane or you're like the demons. Those are the only two options. If you believe in the gospel and do not change, you are either a crazy person or you are willfully rebellious like the demons. Because if I believe in the gospel... If I have changed what my core understanding of reality is, and I understand the things that I used to do were wrong, and they led to sin, and they led to, to loss, and eventually to death, once my mind is changed, why am I continuing to do the things I know that are wrong? Not that I'm never going to stumble. I'm not saying that. But you should be attempting to be better. To do less wrong. To do more right. Again, one of these things is the domain of the demons who know that God exists and do not want to change. One of them is the domain of sin-sick humanity. We who believe or claim to believe the gospel, we want to be different, we want to change, and we just keep doing the same stuff over and over again. Change your mind about how you're living and put God first in his ways first. We'll end with this verse. Fortunately, even though we still continue to sin, we still struggle with that. I understand that there's always going to be that struggle. Jesus promises help for those who will turn to him. Remember those Old Testament verses? God did not expect them to suddenly be perfect. Turn and I will heal you. Turn and I will lift you up. I will raise you up. Just as Jesus promises to us. Acts 3, 17 through 20. And then verse 26. 
And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and did as also did your rulers. But what God has foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. We get both words here, right? Change your mind and turn to God. Start living for God that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, that's the Jews, but of course applies to us too, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I'm reminded of Judas and Peter. Both forsook the Lord on the night of his death. One in a more serious way, we might say. Peter, who denied Jesus, wanted nothing to do with him. Judas, who betrayed him, although at the plan of God. One of those men had godly sorrow, and one had worldly. We, of course, know the story of Judas. His worldly sorrow that led to death. Why? He understood that what he did was wrong. He changed his mind about that. But rather than going to God and asking for forgiveness, going to the Son, Jesus, after his resurrection and asking for forgiveness, rather than thinking that there might be some possibility of redemption, he took his own life. He had changed his mind. But he had not repented. Because his repentance did not lead him to act in a way that would lead him back to God. Contrasted with Peter. Felt sorrow. The grief, the guilt, the shame. How could I have done that? And yet did remain when the Lord resurrect, was resurrected. Came back to him. And we have that confrontation at the end. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. Really, Peter? But of course we know how that turned out. The Lord did forgive him. Gave him a mission. Feed my sheep that he fulfilled. You, no matter what your sin is, can repent, can change your mind because God wants to forgive you. That's what he wants to do, right? He wants to forgive you. He wants to forgive all of us. So if you're here today and you know, you believe the gospel story, you're ready to change, let us help you do that. We know what is required to believe in his message, to turn from our old life, to repent, to change our mind, but then to do something about it, which would be what? taking the first steps to confess him, to be united in immersion. We can do that today. Come while we stand in.